Well, today we pick up, we carry on the story of the Exodus. As we go through the Old Testament, um, we're up to a really exciting part of Scripture. As we look at the time that they've now come out of the parting of the Red Sea, and we're going to look at today, chapters 16, 17, and if we're lucky, chapter 18 is where we'll be focusing today. So let's, before we begin, I'm going to have a short prayer. Is that okay? Just to calm my nerves and ask God to be with me. So let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, as we open your word, Lord, I ask one thing, that the name of Jesus Christ is uplifted. Lord, I pray as we look into the story of the Exodus, that we see that it parallels the Exodus of our own lives. And I pray that as we talk about the manna, we see the true bread of heaven. Lord, I pray that you bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus chapter 16. And here we have, we will pick up the story of the children of Israel. They have come out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Exodus chapter 16. They have uh, looked at, uh, gone through the bitter water experience. They have seen God work for them miraculously. They've been told by God that he was going to take them to the promised land. He's going to take them to a land in the distant that was flowing with milk and honey. And here we pick up in chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of of Egypt. We now are moving into the second month. It's been over a month and a half they have been journeying from Egypt. They've gone through a stressful time and as they have crossed the sea, they come up into the wilderness and here they're faced with the experience of the desert. I remember when I was in the Middle East, I went to this area uh, in the Sinai Peninsula and when I hopped off the air-conditioned bus, my first thought was, man, it's hot. Man, it's hot here. It's like in your bones hot. It is so hot in that area. And as they come up out of the ocean and they're moving into the wilderness, their provisions are running low. They took food with them when they left Egypt. And so far, they've been living off the food and whatever water they could get, etc. But now the food was running low. They had gone days without food. The people were starting to complain. And notice verse 2, what they say. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel did what against Moses? They complained. That's, that word will come up a lot. <laughs> they complained against Moses. Now, I, when I look at this, I think it's quite fair. I mean, they had no food. Here they were told they were going into a land. They didn't really know how long it would take. And as they're going into this wilderness experience, as they're going into the desert, this is a picture of that area there. How much food do you see? And there was around a million people, they say, walking in this big sort of uh, caravan of people through the desert. And they're looking around going, how on earth are we going to survive? Where's the food? Where's the food, Moses? We are dying. Our stomachs are grumbling. It is eating inside of us. And, And they're complaining. They're grumbling. They're hungry. Does God get angry? Does God say to Moses, strike them down? How dare they complain against me? Well, let's notice God's response in verse 3. 
And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate the bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In other words, they're saying, you know, when we were in Egypt, at least we had meat to eat. At least we had food. At least when we were in Egypt, we could eat. But out here, you've taken us. We're just going to die. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I will rain what from heaven? And the people will go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may do what to them? That's a key word. I may test them or prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. This is interesting. God's response to their hunger was not so much anger, but was to provide for their needs. And so it is with God with us. As we move into the story, the narrative of the Exodus, there's one thing that must be said. The Exodus in the Bible represents our own Christian experience. We were slaves to sin, just like the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. But a deliverer has taken us out, amen? Are we heading to a promised land flowing with milk and honey? But is there an Exodus for us? Is there a journey for us? Is there along the way difficulties, trials, hunger along the way? The Exodus story is the story of your life. And as we look at the way that God interacts with the people, it is the parallel to the way that God interacts with you in your own life. And even when we complain, God is, I will send food. When we murmur, he says, I'll rain down manna from heaven. But the question I ask as I look at this, and, and also if you'll notice chapter 17, chapter 17, we have a similar situation, chapter 17 and verse 1, this is after they'd been uh, eating the manna for a period of time, chapter 17, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, the word sin here in the etymology is the, the place of thorns, uh, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no what there? Water. And we see that as even when we read in chapter 17, when they have no food, God brings manna. When they have no water, God brings water from the what? From the rock. So whether it's food or water, God provides. But here's the question. Why didn't he say to them, okay, I'm going to give you seeds and you can cultivate? Why didn't he say, hey, go out and gather this food or, you know, go to another place and you can start to grow crops? Why the manna? Why the water from the rock? Why was it God providing for them? What was he teaching? And as you notice, it says God gave them manna to do what to them? To test them. Now, it's interesting, in the Bible, it tells us about manna, and we'll, we'll just take a look at this manna here. They say in, in the Bible that it is like a coriander seed, and here's a coriander seed. And they say that basically in the morning, what would happen was the children of Israel were told by, by Moses to go out in the morning before the sun rose to collect the manna. It was nothing that they had seen before. In fact, the Bible calls it angel's food. It, was, it came down from heaven. It came like the frost, and according to Jewish tradition, the frost would settle, then the manna would rain down, and then the frost again would protect it. But then as the sun came up, it would melt, and if you hadn't collected it, it was too late. So this manna, this supernatural 
frost on the ground that they had to collect each day, what was it teaching them? It was teaching them dependence on God. In our lives, when we come out of Egypt, when we come out of the world of self-dependency, the number one thing that God teaches you and I is to depend on Him. And He's constantly moving, constantly working, constantly performing miracles in your life to say, you can't feed yourself, you need me. Jesus Live this to the ultimate example in Matthew 4. And turn with me, keep your finger in Exodus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 4, Jesus' own life was a parallel to the Exodus. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized and he's led out into the wilderness for how long? How long? How long was the children of Israel in the wilderness? By the way, if you talk to a Jew and when you read Jewish literature and you say to them, what does the wilderness mean to you? You know what they say? Place of discipline. That's the place where God takes us to purify us. By the way, John the Baptist took the people where? The wilderness. You'll see over and over in the Bible that when God takes us into the wilderness, He's taking us out away from the world to purify us, to discipline us, to strengthen us in our walk. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has gone out into the wilderness for 40 days and He's hungry and He's tired and Satan comes to Him to tempt Him in verse 3. He says, now when the tempter came to Him, He said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become... Here was Jesus, walking by the Spirit in the wilderness. He was hungry. He was weak. And the devil said to him, don't depend on God. You turn the stones to bread. You feed yourself. But what does Jesus say? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from what? You know, it's interesting in our own lives, how easily and how quickly we can find dependence in other things besides God. Amen? How easily it happens in our own life that in our own journey, in the beginning, maybe we're faithful with God. We realize that we've got to eat the manner of God, but it doesn't take long before we start to place our security, our comfort, our nourishment in worldly things. The Bible talks a lot about money, being that security for us. But God intentionally takes us into the wilderness of our lives to teach us that we need Him every day. You couldn't go out and take manna and say, I'll collect enough for three days. You had to do it every day in the morning. You had to go and depend on God to feed you. Jesus intentionally, God intentionally took them into this area where there was no food to teach them to depend on Him. So often in our lives, we form security blankets around ourselves. We can be in the church. We can say that we're Christian. We can tell people, I have faith, but our security is in other things. And you know what God does with those things when we put our faith in them? He takes them away. 
The want of money is the what? The root of all kinds of evil from which many have done what? Strayed from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, don't do this. Pursue righteousness and peace and gentleness. And I know there's some of you sitting here today that it's been a while since you ate the manna because you've been putting your interest, your investments, your treasures in earthly things. And Jesus says, don't lay out for yourselves treasures on earth where moth corrupts and rust destroys. Lay up your treasures where? You show me something in this world that you put your security in and I'll show you the fragility of the world. You show me what stock market you're going to put your security into and I'll show you Greece. Right? Jesus says to us, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus over and over tells us that he feeds the birds, he clothes the grass. How much more do you think he's going to clothe you and dress you and feed you? I hear that, God, but I really need to, you know, my house and my money. God is calling us to put our dependence on him. Notice this statement from patriarchs and prophets. The Lord permits difficulties to surround them. And their supply of food to be cut short, so what? That their hearts might turn to him as their deliverer. And God had rained down this manna, and each morning they couldn't go and make crops. Each morning they had to go out and collect the manna each morning and before the sun rose. And as they were collecting the manna to come in, six days of the week they would collect this manna. On the sixth day they had to had to collect a double portion because the seventh day was the Sabbath. And here, well before the Ten Commandments is given in Exodus 20, they knew of the Sabbath. God was teaching them of the Sabbath, another thing to depend on Him, a day to pause and rest and give a whole day like we are now to God. Oh, no, but I've got to go earn money. No, no, trust God every seventh day. And as this miracle was done every day, as God poured manna down, as he gave them water from the rock, I want you to notice their response in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Numbers tells us of this exodus, tells us of this experience with the manna in Numbers, chapter 11. Numbers 11, here it talks about their response to the manner of heaven. Numbers 11 and verse 4 to 6, it says, Now the, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. God had miraculously fed them with manna. And I'm sure that manna probably got a bit boring after a while. I mean, how much more can you do with some, some cakes, right? They would beat it into cakes. There's probably a thousand manna recipes that they'd come up with by the time they were finished. But it's interesting that even when God provides for us, how easily we become dissatisfied. 
And I want to say this, we complain when we're not satisfied. Maybe some of you guys can relate to this, but I tend to sort of revert to about three years old when I haven't eaten and I'm pretty tired. Can anyone relate to that? And my wife becomes like a mother and we'll be out to go get food and I'm like getting tighter and tighter and I'm like, I just want to go and get a burrito. And we'll finally get there and it's closed and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, and I'm just starting to get angry and then I go to level two and I get hangry. Does anyone get hangry? You know, and then, and then it's just like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want it. And she's like, do you want a sandwich? And I'm like, I just want chips now. I don't even want to eat a sandwich. And, you know, I start to complain because I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy. And, oh, my life's so terrible. First world problems, right? We complain when we're not satisfied. What's interesting to me is the fact that what they say to Moses, what they're complaining to God is this. God had delivered them by a mighty hand from a world of bondage, hundreds of years of slavery and whipping and beating. And they think they were well nourished, but in reality they weren't. The average Egyptian died quite early from malnutrition. In fact, when Joseph's father came to the Pharaoh, he was amazed that he was this man in his old age still healthy because he was on the true diet, by the way. Yet as they went in this journey, and so they're going in the Exodus, they take their eyes off God, and they forget the privileges and the blessings that God has in their life, and they start to whine and pine, oh, we had it better in Egypt. And it's funny how we can, when we take our eyes off God, how we start to go, oh, you know, life was, I had more fun back then, Right? The world's got something better for me. And we get so used to living in slavery to sin that we forget the liberty of God. And we complain. Oh, you know, this is hard and wisely my life is... But if we eat the manna, if we're satisfied in God, we'll never thirst again. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus teaching to the people. He says in John chapter 6, Verse 1, let's turn to John 6, verse 1. Jesus teaching the Jews about this principle of the manna. John chapter 6, verse 1. Sorry, not 1. John 6, 31. John 6, 31. Here he's been speaking of the manna, of eating the bread. And he says in verse 31 of John 6, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the what bread? The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never what? Shall never what? Shall never what? We complain when we're not what? Maybe the reason why we're complaining is because we're not truly partaking of the bread of heaven. A survey was done of people. It was done by a group called Fidelity. They surveyed a group of people who had at least $1 million 
investments, assets, excluding real estate and retirement. In other words, put, a, put aside their, their, uh, their homes and their cars and their boats, they had about a million dollars to play with at least, okay? So richer than us, right? And they asked them this question. They said, do you think you're wealthy? All right, so these are people that have like a million dollars to play with at least. What percentage do you think said that they were wealthy? 42% said they were not wealthy. Sounds crazy, huh? They, had, they have a million dollars to play with. And they said, we're not wealthy. The human heart will forever be dissatisfied as long as we're trying to fill that gap in our life that only God can, can fill. And we spend our lives and the devil tries to sell us a lie that, no, no, if you have this, you'll be happy. It's just around the corner. If you take this, if you have this, if you have this much money, then you'll be happy. It is a lie from the devil. True happiness comes from when we are connected and in love with God. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the water of life that I give you, if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. The manna that came down from heaven represents the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who was poured out for you and I. And I remember in my own Christian experience, when I came into the church, I was about 15 going on 16, I didn't grow up in the church at all, and I heard the gospel, and I, I came to church, and I, I was amazed that this God would die for me, and I gave my life to God, but to be honest, for the first probably two years, I came to church, I sat in the back, I was super introverted, uh, and, then, and then I left. In fact, I remember being at church a few times, people were going, oh, welcome, and I've been there for like a year and a half, and people were like, oh, what's your name? I'm like, oh, I, I've been here for a year and a half, because people just didn't know me, I just I was just like in and out. And I remember sitting there all the time, and, and my only meal that I'd have all week is when I came to church and listened to the sermon, right? That was the only spiritual meal I had. And I loved God, I wanted to be a Christian, but I didn't really understand the Bible half the time I read it. I mean, who's these disciples, and I don't understand anything. And I remember just listening to the sermon and thinking to myself, man, I, I hear these stories of Peter and Paul, and they were just men like me. And they had these amazing experiences with God. And I think, what's the difference between them and me? How can't I have this experience? And I used to wrestle with this and think, man, because I'd get these highs on Sabbath and then Sunday would come and Monday and I'm just back to normal. It's like, I want to I hold that, that spirit all week. I want God to be in my life. And I remember sitting there and, and it's like God said something to me. He says, Dan, the difference between you and them is they live for me every day. They talk with me every day. And I said to myself, no matter what happens, I'm going to just start reading the Bible. I don't, I don't really understand it that well. I'm just going to read it every day. So I picked it up every morning and I would read and I'd be like, I have no idea what that means. I'm pretty sure the red letters just mean something. And I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to chop my hand off and pluck my eye out. I don't, I'm not sure what that is. Can anyone relate to that? But you know what happened as I kept reading? It started to affect my life in a powerful way. Because that manner is the very word of God that we live by. And I want to ask you guys a question. When did they go to collect the manner? 
What do you think that tells us? Who should we start our day focused on? Jesus. In the exodus of our journey, we will not last if we're malnourished. If the children of Israel didn't eat that manna, they wouldn't have been able to even walk. That manna symbolized the word of God that is poured out for you and I every day. And if you eat, as you eat the word, as you take in the word of God, just like food, it comes into your cells and it changes you and sustains you and nourishes you for the journey ahead. And some of us here today, we're only eating one meal a week. We come on Saturday, we hear the sermon, sounds good. You seem to jump around a lot, Daniel, that seems like you're excited, that's great. But let me tell you, if you don't start to eat the manna every day, I'm not sure if you'll last the journey. I'm just being honest. If you're only eating one meal a week, how do you think like you look like spiritually? And you know what happens? When we're not satisfied because we're not nourished, what do we start to lust for? we start to want to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. And it starts to look good. Oh, we had cucumber and watermelon. Let me tell you, they didn't have that much watermelon and cucumber. They probably got it here and there. But after a while, when you're in the desert and you know, you're murmuring, it starts to look good, right? And let me tell you something. You can come to church, this whole religious thing, right? It sucks if you don't have a love and a connection with God. Because it's a bunch of do's and do nots. And as I say to people when I sit in their home, I say, look, think of a marriage. When you're in a marriage, there's a bunch of stuff that you give up. You don't sit there and go, oh, I have to give this up. You give up. I mean, you start to share accounts, right? Your wife spends all your money. You, you know, there's all this stuff, right? But why do we do it? Why do we do it? Right? No one twisted my arm. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why do we do it? Because what's that word? There's a, it's an L word. If you take love out, it sucks. I'm just using that word, right? This is Dan's word today. I just want us to take a real look at ourselves and ask this question. If I'm not eating of the manna and I'm not connected to God every day, you'll be one foot in the wilderness and one foot in Egypt and you will start to get very dissatisfied with your experience. Coming to church once a week, oh, tick the box off, who cares? What really matters in your Christian life is what you do every morning, right? I fail as a preacher if all you do is come and listen once a week, right? I fail. God wants to connect with you every day. That manna that comes down from heaven is the very sustenance, the very nourishment, the very nutrition that God wants to give to your spiritual life. And when you open the Word of God, when I was that young guy and I said, man, I just want a difference. And I read the Bible and I read it every day. And as I read it, man, the Holy Spirit started to work in my life. Everyone I was around, I affected for God. It's nothing to do with me. It's just the power of God moving through my life. Look where I am today, right? 
Nothing to do with me. I just picked up the word and I started to eat it and devour it. And Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What he means is to to consume Christ in your life. If you don't have the word of God, what are we doing here? The exodus of our lives. Each morning, we're to go out and collect the word of God to commune with him. Like Jesus, often they would find him early in the morning before the sun rose, he was out praying. If Jesus needed to do it, do you think you and I need to? My challenge for you guys today is this. Some of you, it's been a while since you consistently read the word of God. Amen? God is telling you today, to reconnect. God is telling you today to reconnect to Him. If there's barriers in your life, if there's things that distract you, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? You sure? He didn't just say put it in your pocket, just put it on the shelf. Don't let anything get in the way of your relationship with God. For me, it was TV. I just ripped the cord out and threw it in the bin. I couldn't watch TV anymore. Maybe you don't have that problem. Whatever it is, don't let it get in the way of you connecting to God. The thing I want to look at quickly is in Exodus 17, After receiving the manna and the water from God, as they were camped in the peninsula, in Exodus chapter 17, we have the experience of the Amalekites, and I'm going to make this simple and finish on this point. We have this experience as they're receiving the manna, as they're keeping the Sabbath, as God is instructing them to rely on Him. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8, we have this experience with the Amalekites. As they camped, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. I want to make a point because of time. The Amalekites will come up as we keep going through the Old Testament. And there's a reason why I wanted to touch base with them. King Amalek, as we know in the genealogies, is the grandson of Esau. Who's Esau? All right. And Amalek, 
who has now has this people called the Amalekites, lived in the southern parts of Israel. And as the children of Israel were coming in the Exodus, they knew full well, we know from Scripture, that they knew full well who God was, who the children of Israel were, and what God was doing. And they deliberately went out and defied what God was trying to do. Now, when we look at the symbolism, here is God taking us out of the land of Egypt through uh, the Messiah figure. He has conquered us out of the slavery of sin, and He's taking us to the promised land. Who is the one in our lives who comes to attack us? Satan. Amalek, the Amalekites, were the first great adversary to the children of Israel coming out of the Exodus. They knew what God was doing to deliver them. They knew of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they wanted to stop it. That is Satan. And here a point I'll make is this. On our journey, as Satan comes to us, the same principles apply for success. Moses went up on the hill, Joshua went down and led the army, and as patriarchs and prophets says, here we have an important thing, that human instrumentality works with divine. God and man work together, and as Moses was there with his hands outstretched over the battle and the noise and war of, of war was going out through the, um, through the area, as Moses held his hands up, Joshua and his army started to win. But as his arms lowered, Amalekites started to win. This shows the power of intercessory prayer. Now you tell me, just so far, we've just started the Exodus. What's God teaching you and I that in order to survive this Exodus, this wilderness experience, this place of thorns and discipline and trial, how are we going to start? How are we going to go through? Manna, we need the Word of God. We need the water of life and we need prayer. And you know what the Amalekites did? They attacked the rear of the camp. Now, who is that usually walks at the rear of the camp? It's the elderly, the children, and the woman. That is who the Amalekites were. They were called an evil people in the Bible. They were out, they killed and slaughtered the elderly, the weak, at the rear of the camp. And God told Moses after the battle, remember what Amalek did, write it down and tell it to the generations. And when we get to 1 Samuel 15, you're going to see King Saul, years later, told to go out and finish the job. And we'll get to that when we get to 1 Samuel. But the Amalekites represent the adversary in our lives. And the point I'll make on this is that if we don't have prayer we will not stand against our adversary. It's clear in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the spiritual forces that are behind all of this stuff. You may have someone in your workplace, a friend, a family member that is attacking you right now in your Christian experience. Look beyond them to see who's really behind it and pray without ceasing. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Love them. Pray for them, because it's not them, it's Satan who's influencing, it's Satan who's working behind it. And if we think that we can stand against Satan in our own strength, we cannot. You will fail every time, but if you send Christ, the demons tremble with fear and run. 
Arm yourselves with the armor of God in your exodus. Sustain yourself on the bread of heaven every day and drink from the water of life every day. Otherwise, we can't even walk in this spiritual journey. We're weak. We are weak and we will fall every time. But if we are armed with Christ, we cannot fail. I can do how much through Christ who strengthens me? Say it again, I can do how much? Then let's arm ourselves with Christ. Let's finish with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, as we've looked just at the chapters of the Exodus and the moments when over a million people walked into the harsh wilderness to begin an experience with you. You clouded them, you fed them, you gave them water from the rock. And every time they complained, you brought mercy because you are so merciful and long-suffering with us. And it's easy, Lord, for us to look at the children of Israel and say, oh, we would not do that, but the truth is we do it every day. We murmur, we complain, and sometimes we lust for Egypt. But Lord, fill us with the bread of life that we may not hunger for the things of the world. Let us be filled that our cup runs over, as David says, and sustain us today. Give us the power and the strength to read your word every day, to devour the word of God. As a Seventh-day Adventist, I am proud to be people of the book. And I pray that for everyone here, that the word of God becomes the sola scriptura, the center of their life. I pray this, Lord, in the power, in the name of Jesus, let everyone say.